Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krauss. Now when I'm out sitting here talking to you through your radio, uh, you can find me on my television show Pop Life. That airs every Saturday at 8.30pm on the CTV News Channel and then again on midnight on CTV. We interview famous people, we have interesting conversations, and today I wanted to share a couple of those conversations with you. They're two of my favorites from the most recent season. A little bit later on, we'll meet an actor who plays a doctor on one of the most popular shows on television. She's Christina Chang, and she plays Dr. Audrey Lim on The Good Doctor. But first, singer, songwriter, author, political activist, and occasional actor Bob Geldof stops by the Pop Life Bar. He became famous as the lead singer of the Irish rock band The Boomtown Rats in the late 1970s and became a legend when he and Midgeur founded the charity supergroup Band-Aid to raise money for famine relief in Ethiopia. And then they went on to organize the super charity concert Live Aid. He's an accomplished solo artist whose charitable work continues to this day. Sir Bob and I were supposed to talk about The Boomtown Rats, Citizens of Boomtown, their first album in 36 years and a lead single called Trash Glam Baby, but as you're about to find out, that was just a starting point for a much wider conversation. I hope you enjoy listening to Bob Geldof as much as I enjoyed speaking with him. Bob, what a pleasure to meet you. Thanks. I want to look back a little bit and Where's find the wine. Like, yeah, we'll, 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 real here? we'll, we'll send over uh, some wine to your hotel. Canadian wine. Canadian wine, yeah, don't good. Um, okay, what's the first question? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably the first edit of the show right there. Um, is there a formative moment from your childhood that, that helped mold the person that you are today? I, I think a set of um, life circumstances led to uh, me thinking a certain way so in it briefly my mom died when I was seven and um, my dad had a job selling towels around the countryside of rural Ireland in the 50s and 60s so no money right. plus there was no one in the house and and so uh, not, no feeling of self-pity but a feeling that this is crap yeah and uh, and so you and then rock and roll happens and I'm listening to, the, we didn't have TV, no telephone, there was no money, so I'm listening to rock and roll. And it's that key moment when Mick and Keith and Bob are telling you stuff that, that, that the young boy doesn't, uh, that understands intuitively and mm -hmm. articulates what he's feeling. And so we all at that time lived under, we still do even more so, under the nuclear threat, but we are palpably aware of it. And so uh, Cuba happens, and then Kennedy, and I wrote away uh, very young to the campaign for nuclear disarmament and I got this huge poster which was um, the mushroom cloud on um, uh, chalk black paper yeah. like you could feel it yeah yeah and it was just a single word underneath it that said no and that was the only thing I had over my bed I shared a bedroom with my dad and he was in the double bed over here and I was in the single bed there. So he had to put up with his child growing up with just no, you know, and <laughs> that stood by me most of my life. And it stayed with you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you think that uh, rock and roll now, because you say you were raised by the radio and saved by rock and roll. Yes. Um, do you think that musical activism in music is still as potent today as it was back when you were growing up and listening to Bob Dylan and the Rolling Stones? No, I don't, because I think there's a real reason for that. It isn't that the people are less thoughtful yeah. uh, involved in doing this. I just don't think it has the currency that it had. 
So I think we can generally agree that rock and roll turned out to be a 50-year pop, 56 to 06, say, mm. but in reality, the year 2000. And what happened was that it was our social media. Right. We got all our, uh, if you were young, you got all your transformative ideas, social, political, moral, cultural, through this thing that was coming through the radio. I mean, if people are thinking at home, that's nonsense, just the Beatles. Yeah. You know, just the ideas that they were translating to you through just style and, and musical ideas and the way they thought mm -hmm. and the way they behaved towards things. And that's just one of the bands. Um, that was, as I say, the central spine of our culture. The spine of the culture today, post-2000, is social media itself. Mm -hmm. And that is as much a tool for authority as it is for the individual. The individual tends to create their own world. That's what, that's what the web does. It has a machine that uh, filters your preferences to other people with the same political or cultural preference or your choice of music. It will tell you if you like this, you like that. You never branch outside the ghetto of the personal. Well, and see, that, that's limited. You're listening to Sir Bob Geldof of the Boomtown Rats on The Richard Krause Show. What is the balance of importance for you between music and politics today? Um, one hinges off the other all the time at, at, a, at a time when really as we've just discussed one has can't influence the other. Mm -hmm. um, but I grew up where to the point where you could influence that and that you know but it was in retrospect it's not weird. Um, we called ourselves the Boomtown Rats um, because Mick and Keith told me to listen to Muddy Waters and Howley Wolf and John yeah. Lee Hooker and Bob Dylan told me to listen to Woody Guthrie. And then I read Bound for Glory, <clears throat> you know, the great musical activist of the 20s and 30s singing timeless songs of um, despondency and dispossession, and, um, but beautiful. And he was in a gang when he was in 11 years old yeah. called the Boomtown Rats. And once we had that, it really did give a sort of clear direction to just these kids fumbling with the music they liked. We would be pointed, we would be focused, we came with clear intent and purpose, but we weren't the only ones. Um, in New York in 1975, it was bankrupt. Mm. Social services had collapsed, the police were hardly working. And the mayor asked Gerald Ford to bail him out, and famously brought, uh, uh, Ford said, drop dead New York. Yeah. So of course out of that you're going to get Blondie, Patti Smith, the Ramones, the talking heads. Same year, in Britain, inflation is 27%. Of course there's no future for Johnny Lydon and his friends, or yeah. Joe Strummer and the Clash, so that you get the pistols that. In Ireland, we had, uh, in effect, a civil war of 3,600 people being murdered, a completely corrupt government, a corrupt church who were busily abusing the children of its parishioners, a zero economy. And of course, you're going to get some guys saying no. And that was us, uh, you know, and we made a racket, what Bono called the glorious noise of the Boomtown Rats. <laughs> so you influence the coming people yeah. and the country as a result. And having done that, you have hit after hit after hit, so you influence music, you change music a little bit as well. And then, you know, if you're that way inclined, if the music was pointed and came with purpose, then you end up doing Band Aid and Live Aid, so you have to change the world a little bit. And then you pause, it's 10 years. What else can you do? There's a new crowd come along with something new to say, so let's, let's, let's reconvene at a later date. And then I went off and made seven solo albums yeah. and stuff, you know. What do you, or how do you react to people who say, 
musicians and actors, they shouldn't talk about politics. I just want to hear the songs. I, I don't want to hear politics in acceptance speeches at the Oscars. How do you feel about that, public people making... Uh, uh, yeah, it's a drag. I, I, you know, I go along with it, you know. I don't want to hear, like, the bien pensant, yeah. you know, um, doing their thing, or this year's victim bollocks, yeah. you know. Um, uh, it annoys me. And, uh, but it annoys the activists too, mm -hmm. even though they're being activists. So it's all internalized. It's all to do with, again, uh, to an earlier point, the, the politics of the personal at the precise time when the politics are entirely global, entirely existential. The world economy will teeter and fall again. Will. Mm -hmm. We just reconstructed the same mess and put no one in jail except in Ireland where three bankers went to jail. That's right. You know, but a plutocracy has taken over in the United States. The people who perpetrated that disaster are in power. And they are putting together the world that created 2008 again. And still with no understanding, you just have to see the senators asking Zuckerberg questions that had no meaning whatsoever. And he just battered them away. So uh, having film stars who do have a beef about something getting up is it going to change anything? No, if it's not going to change something, then don't do it. Mm. Focus intently, be pragmatic. It's, it's a pragmatic problem. 13 million people dying of hunger in a world of surplus is intellectually absurd, it is economically illiterate, and it is morally repulsive. And you don't die of hunger, of no food, if you've got cash. So famine is economic. You can change ec economies by dealing with politicians. One logic follows the other. So you move away from the pop singer into negotiating with these agents of change who, whether we like it or not, are politicians. So the logic follows itself. And uh, I hate prescriptive songs. You know, it's why Dylan was so trapped by the protest song. He was just responding to the now. And they said, what's your next protest? <laughs> what? And so he, was, he had to move away from, yeah. from that. He was anyway. But, um, you know, I never really liked the punk bands that were just, you know, you, touch you, you know, it just yeah. made no sense to me. So if we do I Don't Like Mondays, if we do Rat Trap, which I wrote when I worked in an abattoir, it was about the hopeless, I knew I'd leave. Mm. But this was less about the killing of animals, more, more about the slaughterhouse of dreams. And so if you sing Rat Trap today, Though I wrote it and specify what it's about at the time, nobody cared. It was just a pop song. Good, great tune, we yeah. do that. When I wrote I Don't Like Mondays, it was about an event, but I didn't speak about the person involved or mass killing. I, you know, Most people thought it was about going to work on Monday and the boredom or going to school and the drudgery. And six months later they go, oh, hold on. And we could sing that song exactly now for last week's massacre. Yeah. You know, but do you know it's about that? No, not necessarily. And so that's that was a very powerful little tool, you know. And it was a sort of musical entryism, if you like. And having taken our name from the great musical activist, I always viewed rock and roll as being a form of musical activism. In this segment, I ask Bob Geldof about the difference between Sir Bob Geldof and Bobby Boomtown, his alter ego. Uh, well, Sir Bob, like, is a convenient thing for getting upgrades, you know. <laughs> so he comes to the fore at airports and at restaurants and avoiding the velvet rope, you know, and it's really useful. 
and um, getting Bordeaux in my hotel room and not something made in Niagara with ice drops still hanging off it, you know. And uh, so it's good for that stuff. Uh, Bob Geldof make is often even tempered. Yeah. Um, uh, sometimes considered. Um, and uh, can sing and talk about an internal life that needs to have a frame of reference for it to be understood because life sometimes gets very cruel indeed. And uh, it, I'm lucky that I can navigate and negotiate that out the other side when it doesn't seem to have, when the boundaries of grief are limitless or when the abyss of loss are profound and bottomless, then music can frame that into yeah. uh, an understanding. Um, but Bobby Boomtown is, <coughs> I've, I've understood when I began to feel this way again that really, you know, things must change. Though we're too old now and the rats won't be the vehicle for that, it'll be something else. But that no, you know, just that, that great no we started off talking yeah, about, but yeah. no, you know. Um, and li unlike the nine and 10 year old, he didn't have a mechanism for doing this except listening to the, the boys and girls telling him what it was about. And what they were saying to him was that change was uh, inevitable, change was desirable, the world was not immutable, it was in fact plastic and could be molded in a, in a way you wish to steer it in a way you wish to go. And uh, the rhetoric of change will be rock and roll and the platform for change will be rock and roll itself. So I use that. And now, you know, the, the guy who is like a manic ape in front of the Boomtown Rats really doesn't care what he says, uh, really doesn't mind what he does and is indifferent to the consequences of all those. And that's very liberating. So sometimes he erupted, uh, he would erupt at a political meeting and Bono, my more sober friend, would be staring at me, sort of like, and we had a good cop, bad cop thing going on, but I was, you know, it never changed. I was just the bad cop, you know. <laughs> so basically, like, he wants to give the world a great big hug and I want to punch its lights out. But um, we're off our sides of the same coin. So Bobby Boomtown is very useful. You're listening to my conversation with Sir Bob Geldof of the Boomtown Rats on The Richard Krause Show. There's a new single, a new Boomtown Rat single, Trash Glam Baby. Yes. Uh, it was inspired by doing some vintage store shopping. Can't you tell? I did. <laughs> well, uh, so you have a couple of stores you like to go to, have a look in, and you... you There's you... a weird part of the world. Do you know London? Yeah. Okay, well, those of you watching who know London, if you go to Chelsea and walk down the King's Road, mm -hmm. at the very end of the King's Road, there's an S Bend squiggle, and it becomes, it's still the King's Road, it gets called the World End, but that little nub... That's where the sex shop was, right? Vivian Westwood. It still is. It's called something else it's now. It's called though. Sex. Oh, is it? Yeah, and yeah. The, the, the sort of Alice in Wonderland huge clock was that right, tiny yeah. little shop, but that's where the Sex Pistols started. Yeah, yeah. 50 yards up the road is Boy, but it's now called Ad Hoc. That's where The Clash started. 50 yards down the road is where Mick, Keith and Brian began the Rolling Stones in this filthy flat. Uh, a bit up the road again is Anthony Price, was Anthony Price or where early Roxy Music yeah. got their suits done in Duran Duran. And prior to that, that's where Oscar Wilde lived and James uh, Whister, the yeah. artist. So this is, seems to be a little place where people make a theatre of the self, right. where there's a kind of, there's, there's an attitude. It's very strange. And I was opposite Vivian Westwood's shop, is, are three 
charity shops, which are okay, but it's kind of near where I live, and uh, I go in there on a regular basis to try and get cheap pool shirts. Check this yeah. out. Uh, <laughs> And I was in there, and it was a Saturday, and this sequined tramp walked into the, um, into the shop, this sort of living glitter ball. <laughs> and she was, uh, she was beautiful, but she wasn't, be she wasn't beautiful, but she yeah. was a beautiful child. She was 15, 16, and just attitude. And I thought, that's right, go girl. Yeah. And... Uh, she was leaning on the counter, her mate worked behind the counter, and of course, properly for a 60, 15-year-old, she was moaning, it was another crap Saturday night, and she had no money, and the boys were all rubbish, and what happened to the feather boa that was in last week? And it reminded me back to our first top 10 record. We'd come from Ireland, we were paddies off the boat. You know, nice, polite, Catholic, Irish 1970s girls and I'm in this maelstrom of radical femininity you know, like these these girls who are just as rebel as the boys who are just as funny just as mad and wild and loud and and amazing uh, I ended up marrying one but um, and I wrote on the tube she's so 20th century yeah. she's so 1970s and this kid was that again she's so 21st century <laughs> and it was the trigger for the record yeah. which is not prescriptive to your earlier point it's more about just know that attitude the sound strikes me as being enough now yeah. let's get real uh, do you find inspiration everywhere when do you, do you do you write a song every week? Do you write a song every day? How often do you? No, sit it down? comes um, it comes and goes. I've learned not to be not to panic. Mm. When 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 the band started, it was panic. Where's the next single? Where's the next album? Get on stage, do an interview, travel to thing, get in the studio. Panic all the time. It's much more enjoyable now. I've got loads, um, loads of songs, yeah. um, so that's not going to be a problem. But you know. Most of them will not work. They're ideas of the moment. Right. Um, you know, I always think about WB Yeats is my master, my great. My, I made a, a big two-hour documentary yeah, yeah. about him. And, but he's like a lot of poets. They get up in the morning and they sit down to write poems. And I just think that's kind of weird. I need three cups of coffee and I'm speeding. And right. then I grab the guitar and the chord that was just a chord yesterday suddenly you know, is a loose thread on a musical cardigan. You s it starts pulling at it and this thing unravels. And I make notes of what I think uh, it's suggesting to me. But these days, more often than not, it's less empirical. I'll stand at the microphone and let my, my, my subconscious yeah. in panic throw out images and ideas that the foreconscious grabs so that the tongue can articulate right. it. And sometimes that works. There's this, one of my favorite track in this album is called Monster Monkeys. And I wrote words, and once the band had done the track, it was such a groove. It was like John Lee Hooker meets R.L. Burnside meets <laughs> some other thing going on. It was sympathy for the devil was happening in my head. I said, no, you know, the words are good, they work, but it, it's getting in the way, it's saying something. And I said, just bear with me, and I closed my eyes, I just said, um, Hey, Mr. Mojo, with your mop-top hair. You know, what? <laughs> you know, who's that? And a journalist last week in the UK said, Hey, Mr. Mojo, with your mop-top hair. 
Boris Johnson or Donald Trump? And I said, yes. You know, <laughs> what? Wait, you know? It's whatever you want it to be. Yeah. Well, you don't want to explain your songs. I would like them explained. Um, you know, sometimes I'll read a critique. Right. If it's not, you know, something insulting me, you know, <laughs> um, which these days doesn't bother me that much. But um, and someone will have a, a really clear insight yeah, yeah. that may work. Or three years down the track, I'll be doing a song and it, it's clear as day to me. There's, there's a song I remember called um, Walking Back to Happiness, right. which I took a title from Helen Shapiro, who was topping the bill when I saw the Beatles. And she was 11, and she had a number one hit called Walking Back to <laughs> Happiness. Whoopa, oh yeah, oh yeah. You laugh, but they had a song called She Loves You, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? so, um, uh, and she looked like Amy Winehouse, and I was nine or ten, and she was sexy. She was eleven, <laughs> and you know it isn't a Me Too mo moment. If you're nine and she's eleven, it's allowed. Yeah. She's an older woman, yeah. and um, so uh, uh, I took that title, and obviously it's about memory. I didn't know yeah. that, but it struck. I love that song. It struck me very forcefully on stage uh, somewhere, sometime. I don't like Mondays. Uh, is a song that you'll be playing on this new tour yeah. uh, and, and I'm sure Tales of Boomtown Glory mm. has, has thoughts about it and uh, the woman who it's based on has uh, been in jail now for four decades and I was kind of chilled though by something that she wrote to you saying that she was glad uh, she'd done it mm. because you'd made her famous mm. after writing the song. How do you respond to something like that? I felt sick. Yeah. I mean clearly she was mad, yeah. very disturbed. I'm not sure about now, the parole board keeps rejecting um, a thing. I mean, you know, I wasn't interested in her, I was interested in the why, mm -hmm. you can tell me why. And, you know, ultimately, uh, we should recap for, for the audience. Yeah. Uh, I was doing, I was trawling through the United States doing a promo tour, 34 cities in 32 days. I was numb with exhaustion which uh, and I was numb with America there was a, a pervasive sort of amorality I thought it, it, it was really brilliantly enshrined two years later in Brett Easton Ellis's book Less Than Zero mm -hmm. and I'm in Atlanta and I'm going through the drudgery of another interview sorry about that and, um, <laughs> uh, and the ticker tape starts going text machine and it's a 16 year old girl killing her classmates or anyone else yeah. from her bedroom window, shooting across the schoolyard. As I'm there in real time, this mad event that no one had ever heard of mm -hmm. is occurring. And utterly bizarrely, utterly in the frame of mind I was in, just traveling, endlessly talking, this penumbra of doing. and. A journalist got her number and called her as she was doing this. And he was saying, stop, you know, why are you doing this? And the girl, looking down the barrel, the rest of the thing said, I don't know, I don't know why. I don't like Mondays. Will that do? So there's no reason. Yeah. And, um, Loads of events were happening at the time. There was, I'd read in the plane over on this magazine about a guy called Bill Gates talk, saying that one day soon everybody would have a personal computer 
and but they needed to perfect this thing, this silicon chip which they could implant memory on. Right. And I thought William Blake's poem about a universe and a grain of sand had come true. You could put memory onto sand, a silicon chip. So that was in my head, the romance of that idea and the automaton nature of it. So all this conflates. And clearly this girl was some kind of automaton. And I go back to the hotel and I knock off this song about something, not the event. It's number one in Canada, it's number one in 32 countries, it's banned in America later. Um, but no one knows what it's about, they think it's about going to school or work. And then suddenly it comes out what it's about and uh, the father who'd given this child a gun every Christmas, what does he think is going to happen? He threatens to sue the record company and they don't put it on sale. Uh, we come forward to today and of course it's a commonplace. And we've just finished a two-hour film on the band, which we'll screen uh, in Toronto. But its premiere is in March uh, in Dublin. And the man who accompanied me on that trip from the record breaks down crying at the enormity of what he's about to say. That at that time, uh, he said, I'd been on at Geldof that he has to write about America. But not, I didn't want this America. Right. But still it put him along with... Neil Young or Bruce Springsteen at the time, who was writing about the culture. Clem Burke from Blondie says, mm -hmm. some people thought it was exploitative, but we needed to hear it. And then uh, Paul Rapport, the guy from the record company, literally breaks down and can't control himself. He says, that was when we didn't do that in this country. Mm -hmm. And it's very telling. And uh, I didn't mean that to be the case. I didn't mean it to be number one. That wasn't what I was after. I thought it was a B-side. Um, I never meant any songs to be hits, they were just good pop tunes. Yeah. But as I say, with, with a purpose. And you can do them now. And there is no sense of nostalgia, because I'm singing about now. When I do Someone's Looking At You, I'm singing about the word we talked about with Google watching mm -hmm. you, you know, all the time, and selling you surveillance capitalism, you know. So, so Bobby Boomtown can do that yeah. quite well. Bob, thanks so much. What a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you. Now we meet an actor who plays a doctor on one of the most popular shows on television. You've seen Christina Chong in films like 28 Days and Random Hearts, and on television on 24, CSI Miami, Boston Legal, Suits, and Desperate Housewives, but she is best known as Dr. Audrey Lim on The Good Doctor. We talk about a little bit of everything here, including what it was like to move to the United States from Taiwan when she was a teenager, and the kind of research she does about medical procedures to convincingly play a doctor on TV. Here's Christina Chong. You moved to the United States from Taiwan when you were 17. That's was there right. any kind of culture shock? There was a lot of culture shock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, when I moved, I had just graduated from high school, you know, to go to university. And even though I had been in the States for some summers, mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, I can speak English, you know. So well, your I, mother's I, American. Yes. Right? Yeah. But, and so I sound like I grew up in the States, you know, but I, it was, a, it, it, almost everything was different, you know, just the the way that teenagers were behaving. <laughs> it's like, you talk to your parents that way, what? Um, and th little things that you know you don't think about, but um, change made me really nervous, like money change. Really? I mean, change, yeah, but, you yeah. know. 
yeah, no, I mean, like at the gas station, you know, back in the old days when you had to go in and pay for your gas, um, and they would say, oh, that's, you know, $5.13, and the money would make me sweat because I wasn't familiar. Just little right. tiny things like that that, yeah, anyway. And to get over all that culture shock, did you study the kids you were going to school with, or, or how did you how did you learn to assimilate? Yeah, I did. I my freshman year, I stayed in an all girls dorm, and that was hard for me. <laughs> my mother insisted I stay in an all girls dorm my first year, and then I begged her after the first year to please let me stay in a co-ed dorm because that was just a lot of estrogen. So I would say those those girls weren't the ones that I was studying necessarily. Right. Um, there were few good ones there but of course yeah I mean and I guess that was the interactor in me anyway yeah. you know that observational nature I just sort of watched everybody and went oh yeah okay so that's what they're saying like the lingo right. the slang all that stuff yeah and yeah. how did you decide on acting you had danced before so yes. performance wasn't completely out of the, the question for you, but how did you fall into acting? You're right, performance, but but speaking in, in performance was right. different for me. So dance obviously doesn't require, tells it's storytelling with your body. Mm -hmm. um, and when that was no longer possible for me, I just sort of in through high school went through a period of like, try, oh, I need a creative outlet. I, then I sang, you know, and then it wasn't until college that I made the official decision when I announced to my parents that I wanted to change majors and and they said, no, my God, you need something to fall back on, you know? And I thought, no, if I major in something that I can fall back on, I'll fall back on it, right? right? So I ended up saying, sticking to my guns and saying I'm gonna do theater and. And, and was there a, a teacher or, or uh, a, a television show or a film or something that inspired you to, to move along that path? Um, it's not one particular teacher. It was, I think, probably little nuggets of encouragement along the mm -hmm. way from all of them. So uh, Mr. Corelli was my high school teacher and he was very encouraging my senior year. And then in college, there were a handful. Um, yeah, so yeah, Ron Willis was one of the ones in college, I remember, right. he just recently passed, but yeah, he was somebody that was also encouraging. And so when you decide to embark on this professionally, what kind of jobs were you getting when you first started? I wasn't <laughs> when I first got started. I was working in the restaurant. Um, well, I was really... Which is a great way to study also, humanity. Also, I did it for years as well, so... <laughs> it's like you're in the restaurant business, you meet all kinds. Um, I started in theater and then, but for television, um, you know what, I I was lucky. I got um, really right off the bat, I mean, aside from hosting a show called Lonely Planet, right when I, I mean, my really my very first thing, aside from Lonely Planet and a soap opera, mm -hmm. like I did, I played an FBI agent on a soap opera. And so I think maybe that started me in that like professional, right. professional career girl <laughs> genre. Um, and then I got a show on, a Dick Wolf show with uh, Oliver Platt and yeah. I played a, a grad student on that. So that was, and then I just, went from there. I'm fascinated by soap operas. So As the World Turns was the soap opera oh, that you were on, right? Oh, you're so good. <laughs> and <laughs> tell me a little bit about that because that is sink or swim time for an actor. The, the pages and pages and pages of dialogue often that you have to learn, uh, you don't really get a chance to do it over and over yeah. again. What did you learn from that whole situation? That it was like the opposite of theater. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, you know, because with theater you get tons of rehearsal right. and you get to talk about it and really roll around and all that, your feelings. And then uh, with soap operas, it was sort of like, 
Well, first of all, I was <laughs> caught off guard. They were like, three, two. Yeah. And I was yeah. waiting for the action, Ooh, you know? Me? So I was just standing there and they were like, that's your cue, lady. And I was like, oh, who's the newbie here? Um, but yeah, you're right. It was just, uh, okay, read the lines once and then go. And we maybe did two takes and then we moved on. And what do so. you learn? how to memorize quickly is there are, are there tricks that you learn from working in that kind of situation that you might not have working in theater or any other in film yeah yes i mean the dialogue is so different than theater um it, it employs the same thing of listening i think that was just it was even more like be present right because you're right here and then that's it and this is your one shot you know yeah. what i mean and then memorizing the lines i mean to be honest it's there's a lot, but it's not hard. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And, and they weren't sticklers back then anyway about being word perfect. Right. It's not so like David Mamet's writing the, uh, no, the script. No, no. Or yeah. Shore, actually. <laughs> David Shore is insistent on word perfect, as well as Aaron Sorkin, right. as well as Mamet. Yeah. 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 And was there a strange storyline that you can recall? I and as think the world of, turns? Yeah, I always think of, of so So many. Yeah. I mean. But for, involving your character? Oh, no. 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 I mean, she ran around in a barn with high heels on. That's about as weird as it got. <laughs> like, no. Is there anything other than maybe the pressure that teaches you to, to really work from instinct in your gut that you miss from that experience? No, because I'm still working yeah. that way. You know, even though I get a few more rehearsals in now with a good doctor. Um, yeah, I'm still working from my gut. You're listening to my interview with Christina Chang of The Good Doctor. Playing a surgeon uh, must have a, a, an incredible amount of uh, research that goes into it. Uh, did you seek real life inspirations? Did you talk to other doctors? Did you work uh, you know, in that way or is it just all on the page? It's a little bit of both. Yeah. I mean, I, I have not been to a real surgery, for example, so that's not something that I've squeamish? done. I can't tell. <laughs> you know I am and I'm not. I mean, I'm fascinated by it. Um, I'll, I, like Dr. Pimplebomber is a show that I'm fascinated with. Me too. Do you? Okay. Me too. And, and I kind of fell into it flicking around the stations Same. one day. Same. And I thought at first I was revolted by it. Same. And then after a while I, I was know. so, See, I became obsessed you. and they were, they were uh -huh. stripping it. They were showing it yeah. one episode after another and I watched like 15 of them in a row. Because thinking to myself all the time, I shouldn't be seeing this. And, and I couldn't that's look like, away. A, like a tiny bit of surgery. But it's yeah. surgery, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. at first I thought by the name of it that they were just popping these yeah. big zits, and yeah. it's not that. It's, <laughs> it's, but see that. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know. So I, I watch it, but I kind of do that. So yeah. does that make me squeamish? I don't know. I don't know. Because I'm still watching. You're yeah. still watching. But anyway, yeah, I research, I mean, through reading, through um, talking to doctors, but I'm not, I haven't researched in terms of actually being in a you know, a theater and watching. You know. I always think that playing a doctor or uh, a surgeon on television, and you've got names that are this long that you have to memorize and say perfectly because mm -hmm. you know there are doctors watching that'll be like, she doesn't know what she's talking about. Oh no, I know, yeah, no, yeah. totally. It's, and it's, well, so this is back to the soap opera days. Mm -hmm. I memorize it and it's, and I get it right for that day and then it's gone. So if you were to ask me right now, what was the hardest, I don't know. You don't know. I don't, can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> that's why I'm not a doctor. Well, there's, I, I, I think that's something that happens. I've talked to lots and lots of actors who 
as soon as the scene is done, they, it's like they hit a dump button in their head and it just yes. all disappears. I know, yeah. it's not good. Or is it? I don't know. <laughs> oh, listen, you don't want all that rattling around I guess there. not. I know it might be helpful one day though. <laughs> Uh, there are several Afri uh, Asian American regulars on The Good Doctor. How important is it for you uh, to have representation of that kind on television on a giant show like The Good Doctor? I mean, it's you know really important. Mm -hmm. I mean, I want to say obviously, but maybe you know. I mean, it's very. I mean, you know, to say uh, this is a really key time, it is, and at the same time, I don't want it to feel like oh, this is just our small window of space right now because right. Crazy Rich Asians came out and now Aquafina's won something for, you know, and I, I'm not poo-pooing that at all. I'm saying thank God that happened, mm -hmm. but I don't want us to feel like a fad either, you know. So it's important and it's and it's important to keep seeing all of us on, on camera, on screen, you know, everybody. Did you grow up ever having a sense that you didn't see yourself represented in movies and television? Yes. Yeah. Yes, 100%. Um, one of the things, though, about growing up in Taiwan was we only had three channels, and we hardly got any Western shows. Mm. So in a way, on television, I grew up seeing a lot of people sort of looking like right. me. <laughs> I just didn't watch a lot of television growing up. But in, in films, you know, it, we're, if we're talking about Hollywood, that kind of thing, then yeah, absolutely. So Joy Luck Club was a really big deal for me. Right. And so it was really nice to have a full circle moment when um, I got to, when I joined the show in Tamlin, Tamita was on the show, and I thought, oh my gosh. <laughs> Like one of my my heroines, you know, I got to finally meet her. Yeah. It was, you know, it's it was a big, a big deal. deal. Yeah. It was a big deal when it came out in the theaters. That was Christina Chong. You know her as Dr. Audrey Lim on The Good Doctor. It's one of the most popular television shows going right now. That and Grey's Anatomy. There's something about medical shows that people seem to really, really like. I want to thank all my guests. Bob Geldof, what a joy to talk to him. When I was about 13, I bought the first Boomtown Rats album. I've been a fan ever since, and it was a real dream to get to talk to him for half an hour or so. I wish we had had a bit longer. And of course, to Christina Chong, watch her on The Good Doctor. Most of all, though, my thanks to you for tuning in. My thanks to Andre and the board, and we'll talk again next week.